Welcome to the podcast, everyone. This is Brother Jason, and you're listening to the Apostolic Bible Study Time podcast. We're back. We finished the book of Hebrews a few weeks ago, and it seemed to be a, a marathon ordeal to get to that last chapter, chapter 13 to the book of Hebrews, but this is episode one in the Romans series. And we are going to be using uh, Brother Bernard's The Message of Romans. Um, I, I'm not a UPC minister, but I want to stick with oneness authors. And Brother Bernard, I, I just I like the way that he writes. You can see my bookshelf at home, and you can see my audible files, and you can tell that I do appreciate the way the man writes because he is clearly highly educated but yet he never comes across condescending. I mean, you can understand what he's saying. He doesn't try to talk over anyone's head. Anyway, I'm just bringing out the point that it is a very good fit with our podcast. So I am very happy to be using Brother Bernard's book. But we're going to go ahead and we're going to jump into this. There's a couple things I am trying to do differently this time than I did the last. I am incorporating the uh, Romans into my notes instead of flipping back and forth in the Bible. So we're going to see how this works out. and We're going to go ahead and begin. But uh, the first paragraph from Brother Bernard's message of Romans in the introduction, he says, the book of Romans is one of the most powerful and influential books of the Bible. It ranks first among Paul's writings in theological depth and significance as well as in length. It discusses the Christian doctrine of salvation in greater detail than any other biblical book. The theological concepts apply to all mankind regardless of place, culture, or time. But I love the book of Romans where we were discussing earlier about doing Romans again for our church Bible study as we are finishing up the book of Zechariah and now we're getting ready to move on to something else. This next coming Thursday will be our 14th chapter of the book of Zechariah. I don't know if you can tell or not, but I get excited about Bible study. If it's something I can learn and the book of Romans is something you can go back into year after year and you can pull out more information than what you had before. And indeed, it is Paul's most powerful book. I appreciate all of Brother Paul's writings, but it just goes into the detail of our Christian walk and the doctrines that we need to hold on to and that we need to understand. But the evidence leads us to believe that Paul wrote the epistle to the Romans from Corinth in the winter of 57, I'm sorry, the winter of 56 to 57 AD before his return to Jerusalem. So this would put us in the book of Acts in the 18th chapter, picking up in verse 1. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth, and he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Uh, Acts 18 and 21, but bade them farewell, saying, I must by all means keep this feast that cometh in Jerusalem, but I will return again unto you if God will. And he sailed from Ephesus. So th this is Paul leaving after all this time, but 
I, I kind of get the idea. The, the wintertime temperatures in Corinth, they're comparable to Wilmington, North Carolina. The, the average January daytime high is right around 56 degrees Fahrenheit. So uh, the winters weren't harsh, but yet I'm sure Paul found plenty of time to be sitting inside around a nice warm fire composing this masterpiece to the Romans. The book itself has 16 chapters, 433 verses, 9,447 words. Romans is the longest of the Apostle Paul's letters. Romans has been referred to as the gospel according to Paul. As far as the founding of the church in Rome, very little is known. There's obscure references made, and archaeology has found uh, evidence of a number of house churches that would date back to the 1st and 2nd century A.D. We're, we're told in Acts, the second chapter and the 10th verse, uh, we'll read this verse, Fergia and Pamphylia in Egypt and in parts of Libya about Cyrene, and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes. This is giving off a kind of a roll call about all the nations that were there on the day of Pentecost. But the strangers of Rome, so we know that most likely what has happened is there were people that were Jews that were there for the Feast of Pentecost in Jerusalem, received the Holy Ghost on the day of Pentecost from the apostles' teaching, because we know the Lord added to the church daily, such as should be saved, but they were there and they received the Holy Ghost, they received uh, the Acts 2.38 salvation, and they took it home with them to Rome, and when they did that, they began preaching and they began teaching, and the church began growing from that time. So likely that is where the founding of the church of Rome lies. Uh, we do know according to the epistle of Romans that there were a number of believers that were of note among the apostles. Romans 16 verse 7, the apostle says, and forgive me if I'm butchering this name, but he says, salute Andronicus, Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen, so being kinsmen, I'm assuming he's meaning Jews there, and my fellow prisoners who are of note among the apostles who also were in Christ before me. So we know uh, the church wasn't very old before Paul left being a persecutor and began being a believer. And if these were believers before he was a believer, these very well could be the ones that were in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. But either way, they were known to the apostles. It says they were of note among the apostles. So with that brief introduction, let's go ahead and jump into the book of Romans Chapter 1, Romans 1, verse 1, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, 
So you'll remember from our Bible study on Hebrews that when Hebrews begins, it lacks the salutation that the apostle gives with his other letters. And we do not know that Paul is the one that wrote Hebrews, but one of the things that makes it believable that Hebrews is actually mostly based around the sermon that Paul would go into each city and teaching the Jews before he turned to the Gentiles is a lack of salutation. It's a lack of a greeting and it doesn't move on like a letter does, but still the words appear to be the Apostle Paul's or at least another man that is educated as the Apostle Paul was. So in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul leaves us no doubt who the author is. A servant, he says, a servant of Jesus Christ. A servant being the Greek word doulos, meaning slave. As Brother Bernard puts it on page 34 of his book, Paul's highest calling and noblest mark of identity was to be a devoted slave of Jesus Christ. Called to be an apostle, the Greek word for apostolos, and I'm sorry, this is me, we're, we're back out of uh, Brother Bernard's book, but called to be an apostle, the Greek word apostolos, Strong's definition G652, a delicate, specifically an ambassador of the gospel, officially a commissioner of Christ, and what an honor that would be, an ambassador of Christ, a commissioner of Christ, but separated under the gospel of God. In our day, there, there's many of them that call themselves to preach, but it, it, God didn't leave any room for Paul to be doubting. He, he wasn't concerned about what was going on. He knew his calling, but he, he was going over to the people in Jerusalem, <laughs> they were wanting him dead, but he wanted to preach to them and tell them what was going on. But he recalls what happened to him in Acts 22, verse 7. And I fell unto the ground and heard a voice saying unto me, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And I answered, Who art thou, Lord? And he said unto me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom thou persecutest. And they that were with me saw indeed the light and were afraid. But they heard not the voice of him that spake to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said unto me, Arise and go into Damascus, and there it shall be told thee of all things which are appointed for thee to do. And when I could not see for the glory of that light being led by the hand of them that were with me, I came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good report of all the Jews which dwelt there, came unto me and stood and said unto me, Brother Saul, receive thy sight. In the same hour I looked upon him, and he said, The God of our fathers hath chosen thee, that thou shouldest know his will, and see that just one, and shouldest hear the voice of his mouth. Now here's the calling part. For thou shalt be his witness unto all men of what thou hast seen and heard. So we understand that God had separated Paul, and he, he called him out. He called him to be an apostle. He called him out to be an ambassador. Again, in the book of Acts, Paul is going on here in uh, 
Acts 13, and I'm sorry, it's not Paul going on, it's Luke writing. He says, now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers as Barnabas and Simeon that was called Niger and Lucius of Cyrene and Manin, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. And as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them and sent them away." So we know that there was no doubt in the Apostle Paul's mind when he began preaching the Word of God, even though he had to go back to Tarsus for that period of time. And uh, he, he had to set and he probably went back to his trade or whatever it was his father had him to do. And I'm sure that, I mean, he was trying to be a witness out there, but there was never a doubt in his mind that God had called him for something greater than making tents. And God did not leave this as a question in his mind. So with all these experiences, he knew that his calling had come from on high. Romans 1 and 2, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So when we were studying the book of Hebrews, we have made mention that the gospel is not plan B as many make it out to be. It was told from the beginning in Genesis, the third chapter in the 15th verse. He says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Again, in Abraham's day, Genesis 22, verse 8, And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went together, both of them together. And there's countless other places that are in the prophets that foretell of the uh, dispensation of time when the gospel was going to be presented and God would reconcile mankind to himself, those that had the desire to be with God. He was going to call his seed out from the nations and he was going to make one flock, he was going to make one fold that references uh, John the 10th chapter right around the 10th verse there was going to be one shepherd there was going to be one flock he brings us all in together but the gospel was not plan B the gospel was plan A because God knew what Adam and Eve would do that there's no question about that you can't see the end from the beginning and then be caught by surprise when somebody throws a wrench into the works that's not at all what happened. God knew God was going to make a way that mankind could be reconciled to himself. Romans, the first chapter, verse 3. Concerning his son Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, of the seed of David, over in Micah, the fifth chapter in the second verse, but thou, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, 
from everlasting. So we know clear in, in the book of Micah, it was already foretold that this was he was going to come out of Judah. He was going to come out of the seed of David because Bethlehem was Judah. Bethlehem was David's city. That's uh, there was a I wish I'd have brought up the reference. I can't tell you exactly where it is other than in the historical books. But when David was there and he said, oh, that I could have a drink from the well of Bethlehem, he was longing for his hometown when he was fighting against another army that was out there. And then some of his mighty men, they broke through the army that was over there, went over and got David a drink and brought it back to him. But that was his hometown. That was his childhood home. That, that's where he had that connection with. But anyways, he's of the seed of David, speaking of Jesus. Revelation. In uh, 22, verse 16, he says, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. So we know time and time again, we could go back through the genealogies and we can see it, that Christ was of the tribe of Judah and of the, he was born in Bethlehem. He's of the seed of David. He was of the royal seed. I, I've brought up many times during our church services that when they went to make Jesus king in the book of John, he really was of that royal seed, but they didn't understand what kingdom he had come to proclaim to them. He wasn't trying to take David's throne and kick the Romans out. They were looking for a warrior, and instead they got a man that rode into town on a donkey. They were looking for somebody to go out and drive away the enemy. But Jesus has an everlasting kingdom and he has called us to be part of it. We just haven't seen the end of the matter manifest yet. Okay, back to Romans, the fourth verse. And declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead, so the apostles and the church, that this is dealing with uh, declared to be the son of God, but the, the apostles and the church, they all believed beyond the shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach, he was the son of God. And they said as much over in the book of Acts in the fourth chapter in the 30th verse. And before you start hollering first false prophet, just hold on for a minute. Acts, the fourth chapter, the 30th verse, by stretching forth thine hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child, Jesus. Luke, the first chapter, verses 34 and 35, then said Mary unto the angel, how shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. So John the Baptist in John 1 and 29, the next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. So we have God Almighty came down in this flesh of Jesus Christ, and that flesh became our perfect 
Passover lamb. Now, I'm not going to get into it right now. Perhaps this is something for a, a Bible study on its own, but over in the book of John, when Jesus had resurrected and Mary Magdalene realized who he was and she said, Rabboni, and he said, Touch me not, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. So I, I believe something happened from that time where Jesus had ascended up to the Father, and I believe it's in the same chapter that he appears again to his apostles, and Thomas sees him, and he says, my Lord and my God, and uh, Jesus says, go ahead, Thomas. He says, put your fingers in, in the nail prints in my hand. Go ahead and thrust your fist in my side, and be not doubting, but believe. So how in the same chapter do we go from touch me not to go ahead and touch me go ahead increase your faith see that it's really me see that I really resurrected from the dead something happened to that body from the time that he saw Mary to the time that he appeared to his apostles something had happened to that body now I'm not going to go any deeper into that, as I said, maybe that's a time for a, a, another Bible study. But Jesus was the perfect Passover lamb. So, uh, yes, I, I am a Pentecostal, apostolic, one God. That is absolutely what I believe. And I believe, just like Colossians 2 and 9 says, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. But I believe we could wrap up our oneness belief in the words of Jesus in the book of John in the third chapter in verses 12 and 13. Now, Jesus is telling Nicodemus here, he says, if I have told you earthly things and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? Verse 13 now. And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. I kind of wonder if that didn't bake Nicodemus's cookies. But how do you explain to somebody that you are standing in front of them and although, yes, you are here, you're also there? With us, that is impossible. And yes, Jesus had flesh. I understand that. But at the same time, his nature is also spirit. In him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.16, great is the mystery. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. So although, yes, that flesh nature was there and we can see it in the garden when Jesus truly did not want to be crucified, but yet he submitted his will over there was a will of the flesh there, but still God Almighty was in that flesh. And then something happens and something changes. But anyways, we're not going to go into that now. But Jesus was God right there in front of Nicodemus as much as Jesus is God right now. And it bothers me when people can go from Genesis to the book of Revelation and somehow get the idea that Jesus was not God when indeed he was. He was God. He is God. He will ever be God. 
And I know I'm preaching to the choir, and I'm sorry about that. I get excited about these things sometimes. Uh, well, we're not going to go there right now. There's just many people that have many false ideas about the Godhead. The Lord has given us a book, and He's given us instruction, and He has explained what He wants us to know but when you try to read through man's wisdom instead of through the Spirit, well, you get the Roman Catholic Church. Okay, and when it was time for the Holy Ghost to be poured out upon the church, again, John 14, verses 15 through 18, If ye love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, <laughs> and shall be in you. And then verse 18, I will not leave you comfortless, I will come to you. Well, now the Trinitarians, they will say there has to be some kind of reasonable explanation for that. And here's Paul's reasonable explanation. In 2 Corinthians, the third chapter, the 17th verse, now the Lord, and what's Ephesians 4 and 5 say? There's one Lord, right? There, there's not different lords out there running around with a big L in front of their title. Now the Lord is that spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Now the Lord is that Spirit. He is the Father. He is the Son. He is the Holy Ghost. Deuteronomy 6 and 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Romans 1 verse 5, By whom we have received grace and apostleship, for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Brother Bernard's book on page 35, he says, Faith here does not mean doctrine, but belief itself. From the outset, the book of Romans makes clear that genuine faith will always, emphasis is my own, but he says always, Genuine faith will always produce and cannot be separated from obedience. Justification by faith is inseparably linked with obedience to the gospel. This concept is reiterated at the book's end in Romans chapter 15 verse 18 and also chapter 16 verse 26. Romans 1 and 6 now back to the text, among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ. So this is the name we are called by. Galatians 3 and 27, For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That's the reason why it just boggles the mind, those that baptize Matthew 28 and 19. It boggles the mind because everything that the apostles have written tells us that there was never anybody baptized by standing over them saying that I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. 
we understand that those three are Jesus Christ. When the apostles baptized anyone, they baptized them in the name of the Lord. Not the title of the Lord, the name of the Lord. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. We have taken upon us that name. And to back that up, let's go to Ephesians the third chapter, the 14th and 15th verse. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. So this whole family that we belong to now, this whole family is named of the name of Jesus Christ. That's the reason why we are baptized into his name. We are baptized into Christ. We have put on Christ, and that is the name of the family of God, is Jesus Christ. Romans 1, verse 7, To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to go ahead and we're going to end off here for this episode. That is the end of the salutation before we get into where Paul starts in his doctrine. And I believe it's next week that I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. So we've got some good ground to cover next episode when we get into this. But if you have any questions, comments, complaints, the email address is apostolicbiblestudytime at gmail.com. That's apostolicbiblestudytime at gmail.com. The Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash apostolicbiblestudytime. And one more time, the Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash apostolicbiblestudytime. I'm excited, friend. I am excited to see what the book of Romans holds for us, and I'm sure you have read it as well as I have read it, and I'm interested to see what new bits of information we can get out, what new revelation we can get from the book of Romans as we walk through this together. But until the next time, this is Brother Jason reminding you again that Jesus is not in the Godhead. Colossians 2 and 9 says, For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Again, this is Brother Jason. Until next time, goodbye and God bless. God is Jesus and is all in him. Alpha and Omega, beginning and the end. Perfection, our righteousness and power. Yeah.